Let's open our Bibles, please, to Psalm 11 and 12. There are two short psalms. One has seven verses and the other one eight. So both of them combined are only 15 verses. The 11th psalm has to do with, the, we might title it, the steadfast Christian. The steadfast Christian. What is it to be steadfast? If you look at verse 1, it says, In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain. Remember, David had uh, many enemies and those that were against him. And he is encouraging himself in God against his enemies. And we find that he says, In the Lord put I my trust. And so a steadfast Christian, first of all, he must trust in the Lord. That's at the top of the list. If you're to be steadfast, you're to have faith. Trust is faith. The Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. It says, In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he should direct thy paths. So, a Christian to be steadfast must have trust. We sing a song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. If we don't have trust, we don't have faith, uh, we cannot be steadfast. That's Everything begins in faith, doesn't it? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And that's trust as well. Okay, and then it says, How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? He must refuse the advice from friends. They were saying to David, flee, run away. A steadfast Christian must uh, refuse the advice from friends who may mean well, but they lack confidence in God. Nehemiah refused to flee. The book of Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 11 wanted him to flee into the temple for sanctuary. And he said, should such a man as I flee, are Christians going to run away? We need to... Refuse the advice from friends that would uh, cause us to have to be afraid and to lack confidence in God and to run away from our uh, enemies and from our problems. Some of our friends would make cowards out of us if we'd let them. To said, a man's friend shall foes shall be they of his own household. Sometimes that is true. Matthew ten verse thirty six. Because it would make cowards out of us, say, if we stand for the truth, we preach the word. If you stand for uh, what you believe is right in God's word, that it's not popular. And sometimes it's not popular to stand anyway. Doctrinal differences, you must stand on the word of God and what it teaches. This, uh, this Sunday morning, last Sunday morning on a text, he shall be great. We talked about how great Christ was in every aspect. And you know, if you stand for the fundamentals of the faith and the doctrines of grace and faith in Christ and these things that we tried to preach Sunday morning, sometimes you'll not be popular. But those that want to hear the truth and hear the Word of God, they will stand there and stand fast. And then notice something else that the steadfast Christian, For lo, the wicked bend their bow... They make ready their arrow upon the string. This is what David's enemies were doing. That they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. So the steadfast Christian, he must expect threats and he must expect persecution from the world. See, he says, they, the wicked, they bend their bow. 
They make ready their arrow upon the string, their arrows of criticism, their arrows of uh, whatever uh, that target they're setting upon you. They're, they're fighting, they're aiming their arrows at you. And he says that, uh, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. So if you're upright in heart, if you're a steadfast Christian, you may expect the threats and the persecution from the world. You don't get the help that you need from the world. You get it from the Lord. The Bible tells us we have three great enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they're real, too. The world is an enemy. The flesh is an enemy. And the devil is an enemy. The Bible says the devil, your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith. Tells us where to resist the devil. It says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passeth away. But listen, he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And then the flesh. Paul says the spirit lusts against the flesh. He says these are contrary one to another, so that you cannot do the things that you would. And he says if you walk in the spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's why Christians need the house of God. That's why Christians need the Word of God. That's why Christians need to pray. To be a steadfast Christian, you need these things. And so you must expect the threats. Jesus said in John 15, uh, verse 18, and the whole passage is good, 18 through 20. But he says, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. He wants us not to marvel. Marvel not that the world hates you. He says, if, if the world hated you, remember that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus was hated by the world. And he expects us to realize that those same threats and persecutions from the world will come to us. Look at the next verse in our psalm. It says in verse 3, 11, 3, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The foundations of a nation or a society upon which justice depends may be destroyed. They may be destroyed, but God's foundations are sure. The Bible says, The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. I like that verse because it... It shows two sides of it. It says, The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. Someone says, Boy, that's good. I belong to the Lord. He knows I'm, I belong to Him. That's great. And it says, And, do you want to do this next part? And let everyone, if you make this claim, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So, we are distinguished from the world, and we're to be separated from the world as well. And that's our responsibility. He does the claiming of us to be His. And He tells us to do the separating. That everyone that nameth the name of Christ. You say, you say, I claim to be a Christian, or I am a Christian. Well, He says, then depart from iniquity. That's our responsibility. The foundations. It says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
Bible says other foundation, Paul says other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. No one can lay any other foundation for our faith or for the church or for us to build upon it as far as our service is concerned, as far as our life is concerned. You must start with a foundation before you build a building, right? You have to do that. He says, other foundation, that's 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, can no man lay than that is laid. That's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it says, if any man build upon this foundation, uh, wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones, his work shall be tried as by fire of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, that's that foundation, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be uh, burned, he shall suffer loss. But his soul shall be saved, yet so is by fire. Because he's saved by grace. And his works are in Christ, but if they're works that are faulty, they're going to be burned up or destroyed by fire. See, your works are a different thing from your salvation. Your works are your life. It's your fellowship and your service and, and your whole life as a Christian. You have three verses in the New Testament that indicate this. It tells us that our works, that one I quoted to you, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And in Romans 14, I believe it's verse 10, that we'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're in one place, we're not to judge one another anymore, so we're going to be held into account for our fellowship with one another. And then the first scripture I gave you, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, has to do with our works, our service. And then the other one has to do with our whole life in the 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It tells us that uh, we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every man may give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or bad. Someone says, well, how about my Christian life? All of these th three things are important in your Christian life. Your works your fellowship, and and your whole life. Your whole life, spiritually, is involved at the judgment seat of Christ. So it makes a great deal of difference how you live. It makes a great deal of difference whether you serve God in the right way or and if you have fellowship with the brethren and your very most intimate things of your life, your life in general, your spiritual life. It's all going to be brought into account. doesn't mean you're going to be lost because you fall short in any of these, but it does mean you'll suffer loss of reward. Your soul shall be saved, yet so is by fire. We talk about the foundations. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations of anything be destroyed, you don't have anything to build upon. We need to make sure that the foundation is right. And then we find in the next verses... It's kind of a division from verse 4 on down through 7. And we find the Christian's resource. What can he do? The Lord, in verse 4, is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. Think of that for a moment. If the Lord is in his holy temple, the Christian has a resource of prayer. He can pray. Remember, Jesus said, My house, it is written that my house shall be called in a house of prayer. The Lord is in his holy temple. Christian's resource is prayer, isn't it? And then he can rest assured that God is still on the throne in heaven. Look at verse 4 again. The Lord's throne is in heaven. 
because God's throne is in heaven. He has prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. That's the resource. We have prayer to the Lord in his temple. We have confidence that he's on his throne in heaven. There's another passage that says he has set his throne for judgment. Christian has a lot of resources, doesn't he? He must remember that God allows trials to come. And we should not give away in despair. But look at the verse, at the fifth verse. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. I read something into this just a little bit ago. Look, the last part, and then we'll come back and, and draw a comparison. But the wicked and him that loveth, loveth violence, his soul hateth. So the man that loves violence and the wicked man that loves violence, God hates. Now look, the first part, the Lord trieth the righteous. That means he does that because he loves him. He doesn't hate him. He he trieth the righteous because of love. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. So I read love into that first statement. The Lord trieth the righteous. Why does the Lord try the righteous? Because the Lord loves the righteous. And whom the Lord loveth, he, he chasteneth. And that's why he trieth or chasteneth them. But notice the last part of the verse. But the wicked in him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. You see, love and hate are the opposite, aren't they? And some more about that in this passage of Scripture before we finish. <clears throat> so, you can know, you can remember that God allows trials to come your way. Therefore, a purpose. In First Peter chapter one verse six, the Bible says, "Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations." Peter says, "If need be, you're in manifold temptations." And then verse seven, he says, "That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You see, your trials will be answered at the coming of Christ. Someone says, I've endured so much in life and I've gone through so many trials. Well, don't worry about it because there's going to be a day of reward. I have a little tape in my pickup that I play as I was going down the road. The song, Will There Be Any Stars in Your Crown? When at evening the sun goeth down. The reward. There's coming a reward day. Be a haven of rest. There's going to be a time that the that the righteous will receive their rewards. The judgment seat of Christ. And through trials, he says, if need be, you go through these many trials and are heaviness through manifold temptations. Manifold temptations. And then he says that the trial of your faith is much more precious than of gold that perisheth. We think gold is precious, don't we? But Peter says it's better than that. That gold perishes. Though it be tried with fire. And he says the reason being that it might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That's when you're going to realize the reward. Sometimes we want our rewards before time, don't we? We're like little children. We wanted Christmas in the middle of the year instead of waiting till all year long. It used to be when I was a little boy, it seemed like a long time, forever. I didn't know that there was... I thought maybe there was just one Christmas in ten years because it's so long. And now they come pretty quick when you get older, don't they? 
But the thing about it is, when you're a little child, it seems like forever. And they want it to happen quick. That's the way children are about things. And that's You know, we're that way in God's sight as children, aren't we? We want the glories of heaven before we get through with the trials of this earth. But the trials of this earth are necessary for the glories of heaven. And then the next, notice what it says here. It says in verse uh, uh, 6, Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. In other words, the sinner's cup is a cup of judgment, isn't it? This is the portion of their cup. The word cup in Scripture is a frequent figure of God's mercy or favor, and it's also a figure of God's wrath. It can be either way. This psalm, Psalm 11, verse 6, we find it's a picture of God's wrath. It says, Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. This is the cup of iniquity that they're going to drink, cup of wrath that they're going to drink of. Sodom and Gomorrah drank that cup of judgment. Daniel speaks of it. Peter speaks of the the angels that sinned, left their first estate and were cast down into hell, reserved unto judgment. He speaks of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that were turned into ashes. He speaks of all the various uh, judgments. In Noah's day, a wicked world was judged. God saved Noah the eighth person. And there's going to be a future day of judgment. In 2 Peter, let me read that for you. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, deserved them and, uh, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and deliver just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. It says, The Lord knoweth, now look, how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. I have a, a, a message there in Second Peter written in my margin, and it's called When God's Patience Wear Out with the Angels, with the whole world in Noah's time, with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, with Pharaoh and the Egyptians, uh, with the Jews uh, after Christ's death, one million were slain when Jerusalem was destroyed in the temple. With Belshazzar, remember Belshazzar, when they drank the wine out of the golden vessels and silver vessels that they had desecrated, that they had taken from the temple. God's patience ran out with Ananias into the fire. And God's patience is going to run out with men that continue to rebel against Him and sin. Now's the day of repentance. Now's the time that we can prepare for eternity. He said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your soul. But my, because he says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So now's the time that we can. So the wicked have a cup they're going to drink, aren't they? Of wrath. 
The Savior's cup is the cup of suffering. In Matthew 26 and verse 27, he took the cup and gave thanks. He said, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. He says, this cup represents my bloodshed. On down in chapter 26 and verse uh, verse 39, he went a little farther. And this is in the Garden of Gethsemane and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, this cup of suffering pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. So the Savior's, the sinner's cup is a cup of judgment or wrath. The Savior's cup is a cup of suffering. And then the gospel cup is a cup of salvation. Psalm 116, let me read this for you. In the 116th Psalm, if I can find it, and look at this verse. Verse 13 says, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. The the wicked have a cup of wrath. Jesus had a cup of suffering. Here, uh, it says, I will take the cup of salvation. The gospel cup is a cup of salvation. The Christ rejecter's cup is a cup of wrath. You find it in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 10. Let me read this for you. By the way, this is another sermon. I've given you two sermons in the last two minutes. 14.10 says, The same, listen, Revelation 14.10, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. See that? The cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So the Christ rejecter's cup is a cup of wrath. It's indignation, torment, and suffering. And then the believer's cup, Psalm 23. We'll give you this and then we'll get back to our lesson. 23, Psalm 23, and you know what the believer's cup is? Five. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. My cup runneth over. So what is it? The believer's cup is a cup of blessings that's running over. We could talk about that all day. And there are so many points that we could point out about the cup of blessing. But let's get back to the exposition of Psalm 11 because our time is getting away. Psalm 11, verse... uh, Six, upon the wicked he shall rain snares, uh, fire and brimstone and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. So theirs is a cup of wrath. Now I want you to look at verse 7. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. Look at that. The righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. have a great deal of comfort knowing that God is opposed to the wicked and will punish them, but we can also find a great deal of comfort knowing that uh, in remembering that it's part of God's nature to love righteousness. Hebrews chapter 1, it says, But unto the Son, he saith, Thy, thy throne, O God, listen. Hebrews 1, verse 8, I believe. Unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Listen. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. 
And it goes on to say, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old, as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Then it says, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be for heirs of salvation? And so we find that it says, He loveth righteousness and hates iniquity. And then the last part of that, verse 7, in our text, always hold your place in the psalm where we're studying, because I may fail to tell you to turn back to it. The righteous Lord loveth righteousness, his countenance doth behold the upright. You know, if God beholds and God sees, then we can, we can have this resource, we can wait patiently. We know God is looking. Someone says, does God see the unjust injustices? God sees them. And the righteous Lord loveth righteousness, and he beholds the upright, so one day he's going to do something about it. Someone says, are the wicked always going to prosper and persecute the poor? Or is the devil going to win the battle? No, he's not, because the Lord beholds, and therefore we can patiently wait until his time to bring judgment, and he'll take care of it. He's in no hurry. He's got all eternity. Of Ecclesiastes, the Bible says, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Listen carefully. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Have you ever heard people say, well, if God was opposed to this, he'd strike us down or punish us for it right now? No, he's no hurt. It says, because it's not executed speedily, therefore their heart, the heart of the sons of men, the heart of the sons of men, so the sons of men are of one heart. See, it's a wicked heart, unless it's changed by grace. It's the only thing that changes with the hearts of men is the grace of God. And so the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And it's just because they say if it's not executed speedily, because sentence against an evil work. So we have to realize that God is, is uh, not in any hurry, and therefore we can wait patiently on God. And we know that he does see. Be patient, therefore, James says, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. So we have a long time to be patient. Look at Psalm 12. We're going to talk about the sin of flattery in the 12th Psalm. The sin of flattery. You know, a lot of people think, I've heard people say, flattery will get you everywhere. But with God, flattery gets you nowhere. He's different than we are. Notice he says, help, Lord. For the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. Now then, the believer may often feel like he, he's alone in standing for what he knows is right. We'll get to the flattery in just a moment. But look at this. He says, "Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men." The psalmist David felt like that there were no faithful men left. He says, Lord, I need your help because all the godly men are cease. They're, they're gone. And he says, the faithful fail from among the children of men. I don't know where I'm going to find them. Like old Elijah, wasn't he? Remember, Elijah says, Lord, 
I'm, I'm very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. And he says, I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. That's what Elijah felt like. Elijah had this sin of this pity. Me, poor me. I'm the only faithful one left. And God said to Elijah, you know what God's answer was to Elijah? He says, Elijah, I have 7,000 men yet that have not bowed knee to Baal. He says, you're not alone. You ever feel alone in, in your stand for God? Sometimes it gets lonely. But on the other hand, we're not the only one left, you know. There's still a lot of fellows that are still standing. And there will be. Jesus said, upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's going to stand. We're not alone in the battle. It, it does my heart good to see uh, each and every one of you out tonight and the convictions that I know you have because you're here and you want to hear the Word of God. The next, next verse says, They speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips. Look at that. There's your flattery. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. Double-hearted. Remember, James says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. A double-minded man. If you find a man that doesn't know what he believes, and he just to go one way or the other just as easily, doesn't make any difference, right or left, and we might put it this way, right or wrong, and so there you, they just go any way they want to go. And it, the Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. There ought to be a time in your life as a Christian that you should learn God's Word and learn exactly what you believe and the doctrines for which you stand and stand there. And if someone comes along trying to change your mind, say, well, if you can show me different, okay. But as long as I have the truth before me, you're going to have to convince me that what I've studied and what I have been have deep conviction about is wrong before there can be any change made. I think that's the instability that we have uh, among many today. And that's why these various cults, they prey, P-R-E-Y, upon those that are weak in the faith. They say, well, he doesn't know what he believes. He's a Baptist, all right, or he's a Methodist, or he's a Presbyterian. But he doesn't know what he believes, and we can suck him over here pretty easy. We get him over here because he's unstable. That's the kind they deal with. If you know what you believe, they will, they'll leave you alone pretty quick. You tell them what God's Word says, they'll leave you alone. You say, God's Word says this, it's not my opinion. Thus saith the Lord, you hold their feet to the fire. And this is the fire. His Word is like a fire, the Bible says. And it's like a hammer. And it's like a lot of other things. It has some comparisons. It's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So look at this verse quickly again. Verse 2, They speak vanity, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and with a double heart do they speak. Vanity and flattery go with a double heart. Romans 16, verse 18 says, Good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Good words and fair speeches. Someone said, oh, good words and fair speeches. That sounds so good. It says, deceive the hearts of the simple. Talk about that much? It's worthy of, you know, letting it soak in a little bit. Say, oh, he's such a wonderful speaker. 
I told you one time we went to a meeting in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I was just a little boy at that time, just starting to school. But anyway, we went to a meeting there under a tent over from the church. I was pastoring Mount Pleasant Baptist Church, and we went over there. Of deacons, some of the people wanted to go over there and see what was going on. We went under that tent meeting. They didn't advertise it, put their name up. You know, I don't mind putting the name Baptist up because that lets you know what I believe. But if a fellow won't put his name up, I'm worried about it. Uh, you know, I say, oh, something wrong with that if he's ashamed of it. Went over there and come to find out they're Seventh-day Adventists. And boy, they had some good singing. It was beautiful. And I would, I would recommend it to anybody the first time. It said, uh, you know, the Lord seeking that one sheep that was gone astray, and it was they had good young men singing. It's fine. They had a good testimony and song. The preacher got up and he preached, and he preached that all that were worshiping on Sunday were take, had taken the mark of the beast, and it came from the Catholic Church. When we got through the service, one of the deacons on the way back to church, he said, well, wasn't that a good sermon? I said, yeah, it was pretty good, only there wasn't a word of truth in it. <laughs> good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Isn't that true? It doesn't make any difference. You know, they can preach with all the charisma that, that may be found. And a lot of people have it. And I don't object to having a little bit of that. But the, the point is... It better be the truth that people preach before you accept it. And flattery doesn't do it. And, you know, flattery is displeasing to the Lord. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 5, For neither at any time used we flattering words. Paul says we didn't use any flattering words at any time. And, you know, a lot of people uh, come to church and they want to be uh, praised and flattered. But the preacher has a job to do and he's to get up and declare the Word of God and, and people that love the Lord and love the Word will love that even if it gets on to them. I love it when it corrects me because I know that correction is for my good. As uh, people say, you know, if you get onto their toes, well, that's, that's all right. The shoe fits wear it and so on. The axe is laid at the root of the trees. Well, that's what God's Word does to all of us, myself as well as you. And we should be willing to accept the Word of God as final. And God is displeased with flattering. He says, For neither at any time use we flattering words. I could turn to Psalm 78, verse 36 and 37. I won't have time. We find that James speaks of the tongue being a rebel and hard to control. I want you to look at verse 4. Who have said with our tongue, Will we prevail? Uh, with our tongue will we prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is the Lord over us? They are boasting about their tongue. See? The flatterer says, uh, We have said, With our tongue will we prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? They don't even want to acknowledge God. The tongue is a rebel and hard to control. It says it boasteth great things. And James says, Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. You know, if you have a great big pile of wood out here and a pile of trash, a pile of boards and debris, it just takes a little fire to get the whole thing going, doesn't it? Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. 
And that's what the tongue is. And he says it's set on the fires of hell. And then the Lord does not use flattery. Look at, let's read on down. By the way, we have another verse here before we get to that. Uh, The Lord uh, comes to rescue the poor and the oppressed. Verse 5, for oppression, for the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. So we find the Lord takes the, the case or the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Psalm 103, verse 6, it says, The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. What does he do? Oh, I've been so oppressed. I've been so persecuted. It says, The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. It's good when God takes up your cause, isn't it? He will. If you're the one that's oppressed, just keep on trusting God. Because he's going to avenge you of your adversary one of these days. And you will know it for sure. I've never worried about my enemies very much. I don't like enemies. None of us do. And I don't like people to talk bad about me. And I don't like them to fight against the things of God. But I've had some that have. And it's not pleasant at the time. But it doesn't worry me that much. It really doesn't. The Bible says, if God, what? Before us. Who can be against us? Who shall be against us? And the Bible says, furthermore, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. No weapon. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. And it says, this is the heritage of the servant of the Lord. Servants of the Lord, by the way. And their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Where's our righteousness? It's with the Lord. Where's our protection? No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Where are those that accuse us? Every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. Where do we get this? This is our inheritance. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. That's Isaiah 54, verse 17. Now look at this. It says something else. It says in verse 6, The words of the Lord, and we have to hurry, are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, Purified seven times. Look at that. His word has been tested. It's been tested by time. It has been tested by science, by criticism, by philosophy, by discoveries of archaeology. And yet it remains pure and without defect of any kind. He says it's purified seven times. That's a number of perfection. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth. You know, every kind of critic and criticism has come against the Bible. And yet it remains today. And it's just as true today as it was the days in which it was being enacted and, and being uh, compiled and written from the time of Moses till the time of all the apostles and through, all through the New Testament until we have it canonized and have the Word of God in our hands. It's just as true today as it's ever been. And it always will be. So, God's Word has stood the test, hasn't it? Verse 7 says, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from, from this generation forever. The Lord will protect His people. He's going to keep them from all the afflictions and troubles and trials. God's people have divine protection. 
We talk about angels, and we better keep that under its proper heading. Because just to talk about angels in some kind of a, a mystic way is not the proper way. The Bible says, the, angels of, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, right? So there are protective angels. And the Bible tells us that they are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. That's Hebrews 1.14. We just quoted it for you a little bit ago. The Bible says his, he has made his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. And all of this is true. And yet we know that some people are worshiping angels. And Paul forbids that. In the book of Colossians, he says, unto worshiping of angels and things vainly puffed up by their fleshly mind. You, so, you know, a lot of people think that every little kind of a spiritual impulse that comes across their brain is spirituality. That's not so. The devil has just as much power to send those thoughts across your brain as anybody else. And, and you better watch out because everything you think is just not good. <laughs> Some people say, well, you know, I thought about that and that must be all right. No, you thought about it and you better check it out and see if it's all right. Isn't, you? Isn't the devil in the battle to, for the mind? He's trying to win your mind. If he wins your mind over to him, he's won you. And the Lord has given you some, some... He's given you His Word. He's given you His Holy Spirit. And He brings the truth to your heart. And you better accept that when it comes. And know when it's uh, God's uh, guidance and the Holy Spirit's conviction rather than just something that come across your mind. Because evil thoughts can come across your mind. Well, then evil direction can come across your mind as well. A lot of people move when they just get an impulse. Well, I don't mean by that that you shouldn't be spirit-led. That because the Holy Spirit leads you, but He always leads you according to the truth. He doesn't lead you opposite that. And if He leads you, you can find the answer here, too, in black and white. You find it right here in black and white. So that, the, let's hurry on. It says uh, in verse 8 now, The wicked walk on every side, when the vilest men are exalted and when w wicked men are elevated to a place of authority and our time is gone, they elevate men like themselves. When wicked are in control, Proverbs 29 verse 2 says, When the righteous are in th authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. See that? Proverbs 29 2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. In the days of the divided kingdom, when it first came about, you remember uh, one wanted to take the advice of the young men and make the burden harder for Israel. They said, let's just make their yoke twice as hard to bear as it was under our father. And the older men said, lighten the load on the people. Give them a lighter load to bear. Help them to to be able to bear their load, but don't make it uh, like thorns and briars and thistles and, and uh, make it hard for them. And you know, if you remember, the advice of the younger men was, was taken. It doesn't mean young men don't have good ideas, but it means that they have to be proven along the way too. Because all young men will be older men someday, right? They have to grow into these things. And so what I'm saying is, they refuse the 
the advice of men of wisdom and understanding, and they cause trouble and division in the kingdom and suffering and sorrow. So uh, we know that is true. And that's verse of Scripture I read to you, and I'll read it again. It says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked bear through, 